Welcome to the MetaView Podcast. Here, these non-fungible conversations, they will yield you great knowledge and perspective. But beware, they might also make your brain go boom. So watch your step, because this rabbit hole goes deep. Good luck and have fun. Welcome, Jim, to the MetaView podcast. Uh, great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Happy to have you. Uh, yeah, so uh, anybody who's familiar with the game B Space probably already knows uh, who Jim Rutt is. But for those who don't, you want to tell us a bit more about yourself? Uh, basically, I was a business guy, most of it involved with building the internet and products for the internet and things that came before the internet. Uh, I retired in uh, 20, uh, 2001. I then made a pivot back to my original love, which was science, and uh, became involved with the Santa Fe Institute, which is the, uh, uh, we claim at least, to be the world's leading center for complexity science, the study of uh, complex things like the economy, like life, uh, like the universe, etc. And uh, started out there as a researcher, eventually ended up as the chairman. Then I retired from that in 2012, moved back to Virginia. And uh, around 2012, myself and some friends started the social movement and philosophical set of ideas that became Game B. And I've been working on those since, well, as well as doing uh, many other things. Cool. And uh, is uh, the Santa Fe Institute where you met uh, Daniel Schmachtenberger? Uh, nope. It's where I met Jordan Hall. And in fact, uh, I think the origin story of Game B is a uh, meeting that Jordan Hall and I had after a Santa Fe Institute board meeting. He was a relatively new uh, board trustee, uh, at that point I think was vice chairman, and I didn't really know him, but uh, we somehow got some vibe that we ought to chat. So after the meeting, we uh, found an empty uh, lounge and sat down. We ended up talking for four hours, and it was just amazing how similarly we thought about stuff. And uh, you know, this was probably about 2008, something like that. And, you know, we started being you know, friends and chatting when we got together at these events and email correspondence. And then finally in 2012, I had uh, digested my ideas down to a 65-page paper, which I sent to him. And uh, that was, I think, literally the first uh, step. He then uh, sent it on to another guy that I did not know named Brett Weinstein. And then we brought in some other people and, uh, and things. It basically just accreted from there. And was it called uh, Game B from the beginning? Now, originally, it was called the Emancipation Party. Foolishly, uh, in retrospect, we thought we could build a political party to cause these changes. And I think uh, in about uh, six months' worth of work on the political party, we actually got it up and running. And, you know, it was actually uh, it was an amazing bit of work. Uh, and, in fact, the website still exists, emancipationparty.org. I've been paying... $20 a month, no, no, not less than that. But anyway, a certain amount to keep the website up. And particularly useful to read the reforms that we proposed. We you know, came up with the idea of UBI. We came up with some new monetary systems, uh, a bunch of very interesting ideas. But uh, we concluded after six months and, do, and doing some test marketing that a party was not how to do this. It was just not what we were good at. It was also just not the right approach. And so in January 2013, it 
uh, it morphed at a face to face meeting we had here in Stanton, Virginia, uh, into what's now called the Game B movement, uh, where we realized it was uh, culture had to happen first and it probably had to happen bottom up. And so uh, we've been at it ever since. Makes sense. That was going to be my comment that you kind of need to get the people from bottom up before you can get the politicians to jump on board. And uh, yeah, this fifty-page uh, document that you mentioned—is that also like on the political party website, or was it uh, before it, or yeah, where can people find it? It was before it, and it's—I don't believe it's on the website. I suppose I have a copy of it somewhere, but I don't know where it is. But uh, no, it's not uh, not up on the website. But there's a lot of other stuff up on the website, including a very extensive bibliography uh, that's uh, worth people's reading if they're interested in. Uh, you know, some of the deep thinking that a bunch of us did, not just me and Jordan. There's a lot of other good quality thinkers involved in this effort uh, that, you know, things that we have read as uh, sort of preparatory to get us to where we were at that time. Got it. Makes sense. Yeah, we will include all of the links we can find in the in the show notes. And this is the first time that I'm hearing about the, the Emancipation Party, so that's cool. Yeah, I first heard about the, the Game B space through the, I think it was Rally Point Alpha, a Facebook group through the Future Thinkers podcast? Yes, yes, yes. That uh, came together sometime in 2016 or 2017, Rally Point Alpha. It was kind of a joint effort by uh, Jordan Hall and I. And it wasn't explicitly Game B oriented. It was uh, had a broader audience than that. And actually, it still exists on Facebook, the group Rally Point Alpha. And it was a place for people to who... Uh, identified themselves as having some clue on what's going on to get together and basically discuss current events and bigger changes. And Game B was part of the discussion, but not the majority of the discussion. These days, the Game B communities online have moved to a Mighty Networks private network at game-b.org. Uh, there's about 3,500 members there and another 3,500 members or so, uh, though less active, on our Facebook Game B uh, group. And there's a pretty active Twitter community as well, uh, organized around the hashtag Game B, all one, all one word. Cool. Yeah, we'll have all of those links in the, in the podcast show notes. And uh, yeah, I remember finding the, the group, I think it was 2016, and I was instantly hooked. But uh, how did you find yourself here? So like you, you said you, you got started in the business and then kind of you retired and then got, uh, went to the Santa Fe Institute. But like where's the thread that really like led you there in like your interest in this sort of stuff? I've always had these interests, you know, the, uh, you know, I, think I sometimes laugh and blame it on reading uh, As- Isaac Asimov's Foundation Trilogy when I was 10 years old, right? Uh, <laughs> which took a kind of a big picture look at, at history over 30,000 years and, and you know, how, how societies can be quite different than we think that they are. And then the hubris of people that think they can change them in top-down fashions, uh, you know, the surprises that occur along the way, etc. And I think that's, that's always been an interesting grounding for me. And it was with respect to the transition from business to uh, the Santa Fe Institute, it, it had turned out that I had stumbled upon on uh, some aspects of the area of complexity science while I was still in the business world and was starting to apply them in business. When I was the 
uh, chief technology officer of Thomson Reuters, I started uh, developing and uh, educating our other executives about how to use things like dynamic fitness landscapes for thinking about mergers and acquisitions. And I still recall the first time I gave a talk to very senior executives of the company with dynamic fitness landscapes rising and falling and you know business strategies going along ridges and down valleys and, and all that. And of course, people thought, who was this madman, meaning me? Uh, but I kept at it. And uh, over a couple of years, people started started using uh, that vocabulary, some of them, not all of them, when talking about uh, mergers and acquisitions within the context of our company. And our company was you know, quite active. We'd probably buy 50 or 60 companies a year, maybe sell 20, something like that. Uh, mostly small ones, but occasionally a really big one. And so it was, I think, that that really started building my interest in this, uh, the, this new kind of science, you know, a science not of kind of low-level mechanical causality, but rather how many simple things can interact with each other in known ways and yet produce emergent complexity, which is not subject to the uh, normal reductionist kind of analysis. And, uh, and when I retired, I said, oh, what do I want to work on? So I, I initially decided evolutionary computing, which is the science of getting computer programs to write themselves via Darwinian evolution, uh, which is part of the complexity science space. And uh, I eventually ended up getting invited to go out to the Santa Fe Institute and my you know, exposure to them, which is it's like amazing. It's uh, the, you know, the best thinkers in the world on this. I developed a much broader and more uh, theoretically grounded view on what's really going on in these complex systems. And, uh, and Jordan Hall, the same. So there's, there's no doubt that our, our complexity lens was absolutely fundamental to our attempt to create the Emancipation Party and then our somewhat more successful attempt to start the uh, Game B movement. It, and to this day, it remains a key part of how we think about the world. Right. Makes sense. And uh, how would you define the, the Game B like, to people who have never heard about it? You know, first, uh, it, we do claim that the current world, we call Game A, is coming to an end, one way or the other. It, and I think it's important to note that Game A has been very successful. I personally like to say that our current version of Game A started sometime around 1700 uh, with the intersection of uh, constitutional government in England and the Netherlands, the beginnings of real science uh, in the you know mid-17th century, and I suppose uh, uh, a signature event was the establishment of the Royal Society. That was the time of Newton and Boyle and all those guys, uh, as well as the beginnings of modern finance with the uh, founding of the Bank of England and some similar institutions in Amsterdam. And we can say that, uh, you know, that was essentially the founding time of Game A. And it's worth, uh, you know, noting that the population of the world at that point was about 650 million compared to our eight plus billion today. Most people were desperately poor, living in, uh, if they had them at all, huts with uh, dirt floors, no glass in their windows. You know, the vast preponderance of energy used uh, on Earth was either human muscle power or the muscle power of animals, augmented a little bit by wind and water power, but not much. And uh, mankind, uh, you know, it was still unclear whether the, uh, the choice to go from a hunter-gatherer to an agricultural uh, way of life, you know, seven or 8,000 years previously had actually been a good deal. Uh, life expectancies were fairly short. Uh, people's physical stature was actually less than the hunter-gatherers. Uh, states of their teeth wasn't very good. Uh, 
it was uh, not clear that the gamble had worked. But development of game A, or we might want to call modernism uh, around that time, first slowly and then more and more and more and more and more and more rapidly, figured out useful regularities about our universe. I don't want to call them truths because uh, if one has a truly scientific mind, nothing is a truth carved in stone. It's a useful set of understandings and models uh, that is almost certainly subject to future revision and sometimes complete reversal. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, these uh, findings, which we could call science and technology, uh, were astoundingly useful. Uh, you, know, you know, one of the... Uh, next big uh, inflection points was the development of steam power. This was the first ability to convert fossil fuels into energy. Initially, it had a very limited use, which was pumping water uh, out of mines. The, the first steam engines were so inefficient that the only way they made any economic sense at all uh, was if the, the source of the fuel coal was very cheap and there's no place coal's cheaper than right at a coal mine because there's all kinds of substandard coal that you, know, you can't actually sell that you can just throw into these steam engines and pump the water out of the mines so you could dig the, the, the mines deeper. Uh, and then uh, uh, Watt and his collaborators uh, you know, a bit later into the 18th century made the uh, steam engines considerably more efficient and uh, you know, by the end of the eight, uh, 18th century, the steam engine was now poised to be, uh, to be deployed in all kinds of things. In the early 18th century, we had railroads, steamboats, etc. By the end of the uh, 19th century, we had uh, farm equipment and even uh, the next stage of uh, use of fossil fuels uh, to produce energy, the internal combustion engine. And then the, the, the biggest inflection point of all around 1880, the development of electricity by Edison and Westinghouse and Tesla and a few others. Uh, and, uh, you know, at that point, we were able to convert uh, fossil fuels and water power and occasionally wind power into electricity, which was the most ubiquitous uh, source of energy of all. And, and so that transition from human and animal power around 1700 to steam, internal combustion engines, and electricity by 1900 were the big fundamentals for, for building uh, you know, the infrastructure that allowed Game A to change the world in ways that initially are been good for humans, at least most humans. You know, our lifespans are now much longer. Uh, we have glass in our windows, at least in uh, most developed and even many de most developing countries these days. Uh, we have access to uh, you know, refrigerators, air conditioning, um, and then very importantly, late in the 19th century modern medicine, we finally started to understand life surprisingly late in the day. People did not understand life until 1870. We weren't even sure what it was. Uh, and it wasn't until uh, the mid-20th century that we really understood uh, you know, things like how our metabolism works and how DNA works. And we could uh, finally reject, you know, in a final way, the idea that there's something magical about life. As it turns out, life is uh, a, a classic complex system uh, which organizes lower-level phenomena from uh, physics and chemistry, and then or bio organic chemistry, then biochemistry, into this amazingly interesting uh, complex dance that uh, has taken us from single-cell life that was 
probably very similar to something like today's bacteria through a series of evolutionary breakthroughs uh, leading to us. So, you know, that's uh, uh, kind of in a nutshell what game A is. And he says, oh, sounds good. Why, why are you proposing game B? Well, unfortunately, game A developed when humankind was small and weak. Again, 650 million people using less than a tenth as much energy uh, per person as we are. You multiply the population by more than 10. You multiply the energy intensity of the average human by more than 10. You multiply the two together and you get the fact that we are impinging upon energy a hundred times more than we did as humans back then. And energy is just a surrogate for everything else that humankind is uh, is using. Think of all the raw materials. We're tearing the earth apart. Uh, I think the, one of the more staggering figures is how much of the biosphere has now been converted to humans. You know, in terms of mammals, humans are the second most massive biomass of animal of mammals on earth. The largest is cattle. Uh, and between cattle and the other domestic mammals and uh, humans, we're I don't know, 90% of the mammalian biomass on Earth, when we were probably no more than 10% in uh, 1700. In birds, it's about the same. The mass of our domestic poultry is 80% of all birds on Earth. So what we have done as humans with these great powers we've been able to develop over the last 300 years is overrun the earth. And we are on the verge, in fact, of already over the line in numerous ways, of making the, the earth less and less habitable for humans rather than more and more habitable. And game A, because it evolved in a system and at a time where man was weak and uh, was not could not do serious harm to the biosphere, has no built-in brakes. It does not know how to stop. Everything about game A is more, more, more economic exponential growth, more shiny things, you know, make a bunch of money, buy a big house, buy a 400 square meter house and a new Porsche, right? So that you will be considered sexy and you'll be able to get laid by the good looking girls or boys or whatever it is you're, you're into. And there's no breaks on game A at all. And we've now reached the limits carrying capacity of our earth. In fact, we're, we're past it in some uh, measurable ways. And we need a fundamentally new way of approaching how we live as humans in the world and with each other uh, to slam on the brakes and create, and then at the same time, create a better way of living. Because the other perverse thing about all this game A, while it's produced amazing physical phenomena, it has not in some ways, done all that much for human well-being. You know, if you read the statistics, especially here in the United States, uh, about the uh, deaths of despair, suicide and opioid deaths, uh, lifespans are actually going down in the United States for the first time, and not just because of COVID. You know, you talk, look at the mental health crisis amongst young people today. Despite having material wealth that would have been the envy of Louis XIV, uh, you know, the sun king of France, the, one of the most powerful monarchs uh, in the just pre-modern world, uh, you know, we're, we're still very unhappy. And so the game B turn is to do two things. Just we can be into basically two statements. One is to develop a way of living in the world that fully honors uh, our natural world and actually helps it regenerate from some of the harm that's been done in the late stages of game B. Does it in a way that is organized around increasing human well-being and put it, puts human well-being uh, central, not uh, things like in game A, where the central 
engine of game A is money on money return at this late date. And to do both, uh, living within uh, natural limits and focusing on human well-being in a way that's going to be uh, we call meta-stable for at least hundreds of years. And uh, we say meta-stable in that there will certainly be changes and improvements as there, as there always ought to be. And so we're not, we don't see this as uh, a static view of the world, uh, but it needs to be able to run and adapt to those two previous constraints for quite a period of time before we figure out what humanity's up to next. That makes sense. And uh, to sum it up, the, the problems of game A, so it's like the, the number one problem is this like infinite growth, like converting everything into money and just like subjugating all of the planet, like squeezing it for like maximum profit. Yeah, that, uh, interestingly, game A doesn't particularly have a desire to destroy the earth, uh, but the relentless pursuit on money on money return doesn't care. That's the problem, right? Uh, if it's profitable, and not obviously illegal, uh, Game A will do it. And will do it relatively well because of, you know, late stage capitalism is relatively efficient and is particularly efficient at uh, trying to exploit the externalities. And one of the great externalities is our natural planet. And let's think about this, our own human psychology. If, let's take a look at things like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Uh, and the last most obnoxious one of all, TikTok. These are money-on-money -money return maximization, now strip-mining our most personal and intense inner uh, capacity, which is our attention. Uh, here we now have allowed the money-on-money -money return engine to get inside our head and to play us like a fool. It's, uh, it's amazing. I mean, a wise society would have used these network technologies in a very different way and would have not allowed them uh, to self-optimize around strip mining our attention around the uh, you know, most stupid banalities and in many cases things that are worse than just boring but are you know, actually bad for our uh, collective sense making, filling people's heads full of misinformation, disinformation, and just uh, you know, pointless titillation and decadence and indeed even in perversion right so would you say that uh, then the problem of game b might not necessarily be the growth itself but endless optimization for profit like everything being optimized for that one single metric and maximizing that yeah and i do say this i mean because I, i do not like the word degrowth right because uh, Uh, humans want to improve. Humans want to invent new things. And as Richard Feynman, the very famous uh, physicist, probably one of the three or four greatest physicists of the 20th century, says there's a lot of room at the bottom. And, and indeed, game A is doing growth at the bottom. If you think about something like a computer chip, You know, it's about the size of your thumbnail, maybe a little bigger. You know, it could be as many as 10 billion transistors etched onto it. And that number keeps getting bigger and bigger. And that's a form of growth that actually uh, provides value to humans, but doesn't necessarily impinge much on the natural world. The amount of silicon in a computer chip is, you know, in less than a teaspoon of sand. We got plenty of sand in the world. It does take a fair bit of energy, uh, but not that much. The amount of the total energy of the human race spent on computer chips is way down in the noise level. And, you know, the same is true on 
art. Uh, same is true on, uh, you know, like say computer games. You know, you can build uh, the metaverse. I have some issues with that around the hijacking of human attention. Uh, but there's many ways that we can, uh, you know, build inward and continue to always improve. Works of art is an obvious one. We can have better and better art. You know, and we'll talk about clothing. You know, one of the uh, late stage uh, manifestations of game A is something called fast fashion. Uh, where there's a whole industry built around uh, almost instant obsolescence of clothing, clothing that's made in kind of a inex relatively inexpensive financially way, but it's shipped all over the world, uh, and people you know wear their clothes two or three times, and then it's no longer fashionable, quote unquote, and so they have to have more clothes where the cotton may be raised in Texas and sent to Bangladesh and then woven there and uh, turned into clothing and then sent back to New York City. Uh, when one could imagine in Game B people have a relatively small amount of clothing that it's designed to last for a long time, say five to 10 years. And uh, what, they, what they could do, this is just an example, this is not to say this is game B doctrine, but this is an example of building growth inward. Imagine if you have somebody in your community who's a, a beautifully artistic embroiderer and you take your blue shirt, heavy duty shirt that will last for five to 10 years. And periodically you pay or you trade with your neighbor for her to do her beautiful embroidery and put another design on your shirt. Uh, quite labor intensive, but quite beautiful. And so over time, the beauty of your clothing and hence the beauty of your community has increased. So growth has occurred without any impingement on the uh, natural environment beyond the cost of a little bit of thread, which is uh, not all that much. So uh, this is an important distinction. Being opposed to macro growth, i.e. growth that impinges on the biosphere and uh, growth that impinges into our personal attentional spaces does not mean that there's not room for improvement and growth and uh, continuation of the human drive to do uh, better and better and, and more interesting stuff. Right. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Yeah, it seems there's like this whole uh, group of people who recognize the problems with game A and then they start yelling like degrowth, like we should stop growing, we should stop uh, like expanding. It's more so about like what kind of growth rather than like any growth is bad, like because obviously not every growth is bad. Yeah, and, that, and that's the key. And that's why we, the, the two postulates of game B are so important. Uh, you know, living within planetary boundaries and increasing human well-being. Uh, things that do both of those, it's good to have growth. But in game A, game A does not care about either. And so much of game A growth impinges on the natural boundaries and makes our lives in certain ways worse rather than better, or at a minimum is utterly indifferent to our well-being. Makes sense. And then uh, how do you fix this? What are you focusing on to like try to transition societies from game A to game B? Well, this is uh, where we're taking some moves, which some people disagree with, which is, uh, as I mentioned, uh, we initially thought about politics. Uh, you know, one could, I suppose, uh, try to convince the 10,000 most uh, powerful people in the world that the world should switch from game A to game B. But I can tell you, as somebody who has worked in the White House, worked on Wall Street, been a public company CEO, had known uh, people in all those environments, the chances of game B taking hold in the 
top 10,000 people in the world is essentially zero. Now, I think it is useful to try to educate the top 10,000 people in the world so that they will make somewhat less bad decisions, which we call amelioration, so that we reduce the harm that game A does uh, before it goes away. But we are, at least most of us, and again, the important thing to think about game B is that it, there is no game B hope. There is no uh, Game B Bible. Uh, there are a number of people pursuing Game B in their own ways, but I would say the bulk of uh, the Game B community is focused on doing things from the bottom up. For instance, building on-the-ground communities, which we call proto-bees, where people could live in a way that's in balance uh, with both human uh, well-being and natural uh, the natural world. There's the idea of Game B enterprises, which are businesses probably employee-owned, uh, community-financed uh, with some external financing, but on good, uh, fair terms, etc., uh, that also do business uh, within the Game B postulates, within planetary limits and increasing human well-being. Uh, and then there's the ability for these smaller-level elements to work with each other via uh, inclusion in membranes. For instance, the on-the-ground communities in an area could uh, form together into a league where they agree to certain standards in common. They trade with each other, perhaps using their own currency and not using the outside world's currency. And the same could be true for the uh, Game B Enterprises. They could trade with the communities and they could trade with each other. And again, it's quite possible they could use uh, new forms of currency, not necessarily the fiat currency. And so this is really important. People say, why have you thought about this this way? Which is uh, Game A is big and it is strong. And to attempt to overthrow it, the only way one could imagine is a uh, violent revolution a la the Marxists or something like that, which did way more harm than good. And in general, the history of violent revolution is rather horrifying. So uh, one of our very important theses is how can we do this organically from the inside? And so each game B entity needs to be able to actually outcompete game A or compete at least equally to game A in some region or in some activity such that it can bring wealth and resources in from game A to help build game B. Uh, you know, so for imagine a game B company uh, that does, hey, because it's current, why not? Uh, prompt engineering for generative AI. We have uh, you know a group of people who are doing that, and we know that's a very well-paid occupation right now. But we're living very modestly in a proto B someplace at you know the equivalent of maybe sixty thousand U.S., which uh, for a uh, uh, which is a lot less than a high-paid programmer would make in the U.S. these days. Uh, and uh, the rest of those earnings from people doing that work, uh, part of it is in human well-being by working less hours instead of working 80 hours a week at some Silicon Valley sweatshop. Maybe you're working 30 hours a week. But even still, you're making a lot more money than you actually need to live within, ba within human balance. And that extra money can then be used to build more on-the-ground communities and start more companies. So so the, the work of the uh, prompt engineers being sold into the game A world is pumping resources back into game B, 
greater than necessary to maintain our physical standard of living that we choose to live by, and we use the excess to continue uh, building game B. And if you take that and plot it out and model it, it while it starts slow, it grows exponentially, and over a period of uh, many years, it can grow to the point where we can reach a, a tipping point in uh, complex system space, in phase space of uh, social systems, where then it becomes realistic to think about political change that, that eventually consolidates uh, the flip from game A to game B. Right. And uh, what are some of your like favorite projects trying to do some of these things? Uh, well, there's uh, a couple of on the ground uh, uh, game B communities and they're still very early. It's about 25 groups of people around the world uh, looking to form uh, on the ground uh, physical communities. Now that's a slow process typically because of land use rules and the amount of capital you need. Uh, every week I hear about a new Uh, game B style business. Some of them are explicitly calling themselves Game B. Some of them aren't that are getting started typically on small tech intensive uh, activities. Uh, and, you know, I'm not gonna, not gonna name any names, but I, I know of at least uh, 15 or 20 of those that are out there and the, and the rate of them coming into being is, uh, is greater every day. Let's see, you know, those, you know, those are, those are, I think, the two class of things that we're seeing uh, the most. I hope to see in the next year or two uh, the emergence of community-based uh, organizations for mutual aid. You know, for instance, an example we've used from the very beginning of Game B is the uh, babysitting cooperatives, which used to be fairly common in the United States where, you know, young mothers, young fathers, whatever, get together, form a club, an informal club. They have a ledger. My mother used to keep the ledger for our babysitting club in the town I woke up, uh, I grew up in. And the people traded babysitting hours with each other and uh, were able to have high quality uh, people doing the babysitting for there at that point, very young children. This was a community with right after World War II with lots of young parents. And it worked very, very well. And it was a way for people to provision their lives with a high quality resource, which was another uh, mother to take care of their young children when they went out on a date with their husband or went to, uh, you know, uh, went to do something, went to see a movie or something, and do so without impinging on our relatively modest at the time, uh, you know, dollar economics. And we can, one could imagine uh, mutual aid today, including things like car cooperatives. Most Americans and a lot of Europeans have more cars than they actually need, right? And so why can't a group of people get together and uh, form a legal cooperative, buy a fleet of cars together, and use the car they need for the specific process or specific purpose, uh, rather than think that they need a pickup truck as well as an SUV, as well as a sports car, as well as a family sedan, uh, when in reality they may need uh, less than one car on average. They end up owning three or four, uh, when if they're a uh, member of the car cooperative, uh, they can use their equivalent of one by only by owning a fractional share of this local community-based uh, cooperative. And you could imagine that extending to even uh, food and food buying and even eventually meals preparation. You know, I see, see that as uh, so, sort of a next, a next stage of being able to do game B at the micro level everywhere in the world. Right, and like tool libraries and that sort of stuff. Yeah, tool libraries is another one. Uh, time banks uh, is another example where you can trade time with each other. Uh, there are you know, so many opportunities for mutual aid that are outside the money-on-money -money return economy. And, uh, and, and so those are, you know, those are, I think, some of the next steps uh, that we'd like to see 
see happening. Yeah, I think the main problem, like blocking all of this stuff, is that like most of them require game B people to be aggregated. So like you really need these groups of people where like a bunch of game B people live in the ones in the, like a the same location so they can start doing these things. Yeah, and I do think that's important. And here is why. And this is, uh, if we talk about the two postulates being game B is for living uh, within planetary boundaries in a way that improves human well-being, I think there's also the prime game B finding so far, uh, which is that the development of new institutions is dependent on the development of uh, increased human capacity, you know, that humans actually get better at doing things, and vice versa, that the two are intimately interconnected. Uh, if people try to change, let's say they say, I'm not going to buy uh, shiny Porsches and buy 400 square meter houses. I'm, I'm going to live uh, much more modestly. If they try to do that in their existing communities, uh, they will lose status. They will lose friends. Uh, they will lose mating opportunities if they're young, etc. It's very, very difficult to hold fast to personal change uh, in a uh, cultural context that's not supportive of it. And so we do think that being co-located is probably a very important part of uh, Game B bootstrapping. Because if, you know, I'll give you an example, uh, talking to her a month ago, a young mother, young-ish mother, a child was two, and she was, uh, you know, just frantic uh, talking about what's going to happen when my nine-year-old daughter's best friend uh, shows up with a smartphone. Uh, this mother believes, as many of us do, that giving a smartphone to a nine-year-old is probably worse than giving them cigarettes. Uh, but if you live in a uh, you know suburban community where everybody has a smartphone, including nine-year-old kids, it's really difficult. Do you want to cut your, your nine-year-old uh, daughter away from her friends? That's a whole lot of pain. If you lived in a community where, as a collective, everybody had agreed no smartphones for people under 18 and limited smartphones for everybody because they're dangerous and seductive, that would be a very easy personal change to make because you would be in an institutional uh, container, in this case, a community, where your personal change is supported by the community. And then it, it works the other way too. Once you have people who have you know backed away from the game A values and the game A status symbols, etc., you can then build uh, institutions that, for instance, in uh, in which people voluntarily agree to do more sharing of economics, for instance, where we say, all right, we're going to pool our paychecks and uh, maybe 40% goes to you, but 60% goes into the common pool uh, to build the commons, to build community-based things on the ground, beautiful gardens, indoor swimming pools, uh, meeting rooms, uh, dining halls, etc. But that Institutional change can't occur until the personal change occurs. So you have this spiral of personal change and institutional change. And we believe that this could be a virtuous circle of increasing human capacity, deprogramming from game A malware, and building institutions that improve human well-being within, well within the boundaries, uh, safe planetary boundaries. That is the key reason that so much of Game B focuses on, you know, face-to-face. -face. You know, there is no, we are apes with clothes, right? We are the fifth great ape. 
and very much of how we live is in our bodies, and we're learning a lot in cognitive science uh, that even things like our consciousness is very deeply uh, interconnected with our bodies. And in fact, I've had on my podcast Antonio Damasio, and I recently had on Neil Seth, two very eminent cognitive uh, science, uh, cognitive neuroscience, and in the case of Damasio, I believe he's a medical doctor as well, uh, who have done cutting-edge work on the nature of human consciousness. And more and more, it's becoming very clear that at least our form of consciousness is really fundamentally built around our internal bodily states, our intro-perception, as it's called. Uh, And ignoring uh, this would be extraordinarily dangerous. One of the reasons I'm quite skeptical about virtual everything. Virtual uh, only stimulates a certain part of our uh, full being, and, you know, it's basically the symbolic part principally, to some degree the perceptual part, uh, but do you ever get the feeling while uh, chittering away on, twittering away on Twitter, the same kind of feeling you get around a, uh, a barroom uh, table with uh, seven of your best friends cheering on your favorite football team? And that could either be uh, European football or American football. I'd say, hell no, right? And so uh, I would say that conviviality and face-to-face is an important design aspect of game B. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think all this metaverse stuff is a bit dystopian to me. And uh, yeah, definitely can't get uh, everything that you get out of, not even close, that you get out of the real life that you get in like in the virtual. And it touched upon a great point about like the the people losing status if they're playing game B in a game A world, like with uh, like the kids and the phones or like people not trying to earn a lot and then like losing status in the dating game. And so that puts this like disincentive for people to play the game B. We need, we need uh, bubbles where it's actually advantageous to do the right thing. And in fact, I talked about that origin story uh, with Jordan Hall back in 2008 or nine, And sort of the key thing that caused us both to realize, huh, the world is really is fucked, isn't it? Uh, which is that doing the right thing, being an honorable and honest person, was now a sucker game in the world of business by 2008. And, and that was deeply troubling to us. You know, uh, a good society is a society in which doing the right thing is rewarded, while today doing the right thing is, is penalized. And, uh, and that, we think that's hugely important and will produce a, a tremendous uh, upwell in um, human well-being. Uh, there's a uh, psychological concept from Carl Rogers, which uh, we think is really important here, called congruence, which is how is the way you live uh, the same or different from the way you think you ought to live? Uh, and with full acknowledgement of all your values on all dimensions, including the bodily. Now, it turns out you probably do want some difference so that people are motivated to act. But today, when people are interviewed, what's important to you? And, you know, when you get down really deeply into it, it turns out it's not the 400 uh, square meter house and the shiny Porsche and getting the promotion at work. Uh, It's that their children be healthy and happy, that they are physically healthy, that they're able to pursue their interests, et cetera. And 
so the the incongruence of people embedded in game A today is very high. And if we can uh, have a on-the-ground way of living with an even fairly small bubbles of game B in which the congruence between how you choose to, how you are living and how you would like to live is smaller, uh, we think that's a very powerful draw for people and why uh, once we've proven out the basic operational concepts and gotten the economics right, et cetera, the, you know, the rate of inflow from game A to game B, particularly from young people, we expect to be uh, uh, pretty strong and probably more than we can actually absorb uh, within our growing capital base, which is a good problem to have because it then uh, provides uh, you know, opportunities to uh, create uh, even game A financialized capital to catalyze the growth of game B. Yeah, definitely. And I'm very glad to hear that these bubbles exist now. I know when I discovered Game B space in the 2016, that none of this was really materialized yet. And there was a lot of people talking about how like, oh, this Game B space is just like uh, all intellectual stuff. There's nothing really happening. But sounds like now there's finally stuff happening. I mean, and there's people playing Game B that they don't even like, they're not even familiar with the concept of Game B. They just know that like, it's required to like, play life differently and they're like already building these eco villages and new kinds new ways of living and mutual aid already like i mean obviously existed for thousands of years i feel there's adoption from people who are not even familiar with all these these concepts but they're already doing it yeah it happens all the time i run into people tell them about game b and they uh you know, tell us what they've been doing. And, you know, it's obviously game B or very close to it, but they never had the, the framing of it. And we think this is going to be very powerful and it's still a work in process. But I would say within two years, we should have uh, mass market consumable materials that tell the game B story in a way that people can see and immediately understand, resonate, and actually take some local action to start building game B uh, around them. And because of, uh, you know, the growing awareness, finally, of our ecological limits, the uh, growing awareness of how you know, late-stage game A is strip-mining our internal state, uh, and, of course, nice things like solar energy, etc., which actually makes it uh, more practical to uh, build your own bubbles. Uh, and then, of course, driven by this incongruence in people's lives, that the life they're living is now so far from the life they would like to live that uh, you know we see this potentially starting to gel in a pretty major way here in just the next few years. But, but that is an important point to note. We don't think this is a journey that happens in one generation. And uh, I like to point out that uh, most of the totalitarian utopian visions were based around the idea that we're going to make a new man in one generation, whether it was the French Revolution, whether it was the Nazis, whether it was the Marxist-Leninists or the, uh, the Pol Potians, the Khmer Rouge, who were kind of a heretical version of Marxist-Leninism. Uh, they all said they're going to make the new man in one year, and they all ended up building hells on earth of one sort or another. And so very important part of game be this has to happen organically over a period of two perhaps three generations and be patient people but nonetheless start doing the work right yeah this bottom up but yeah i think it's uh, as you said like it's super important to have these uh, this media these memes that uh, help spread these ideas but then also like to really explain it to people like what are the benefits to them like because it's not just like oh you want to like come here let's uh, save the world like uh, you're gonna sacrifice your own life and you're gonna help everybody else but no it's like it's in everybody's best self-interest to like 
adopt these like new new ways of life. Yes, and that's we think critically important because the yes, there always are one or two or three percent of people who are prepared to martyr themselves, right? Uh, think of the Extinction Rebellion people in the UK, for instance, right? Uh, but most people aren't that way. They have family obligations, they have friendship networks, uh, you know, they have people that rely upon them in other ways. So the trade has to actually work in term, terms of human well-being. Uh, and in fact, one of the cartoon versions uh, we sometimes uh, we play with, we haven't decided whether this is really what we should put out as a memetic payload or not, but it may be, is uh, game B is a way to consume, uh, at least compared to the very consumptive economies of the United States, Canada, and Australia, which are the three worst of the major economies on earth. Uh, we should be able to live on about one third of the material or, and energetic inputs into building and, and operating a society while have three times the human well-being. So a factor of three less and a factor of three more at the same time. And that trade is a perfectly reasonable trade for humans to make. To just say uh, Davos man's model, uh, the, you know, the neoliberal big money boys, is we're going to make people have less. And they're not going to give them anything in return. There's no more. And it's not going to work. People are going to rebel and they're going to vote for fascists, as we're starting to see in Europe and uh, the United States, South America. When you just pound on people and say less, 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 uh, unless you're also at the, in terms of material inputs, uh, unless you're at the same time saying more, more, more in terms of human well-being, people are going to rebel. And it's not an irrational thing for them to do. Yeah, and there's this top-down degrowth and like, oh, you're going to own nothing and you're going to be happy. Like fuck off. Like, nobody wants that, especially not the third world. Like they need to grow, they need to advance. Yeah, in fact, another issue, and this is, this is just me, I wouldn't say this is yet official Game B doctrine, but something I see is a vision for eventual convergence of everybody in the world at about the same level of material and energetic intensity of their civilization. Uh, if we want to use energy as uh, a rough surrogate for the other materials, and it, they're not 100% correlated, they're, but they're close enough. A advanced country like United States, Canada, or Australia, each person is burning continuously about 11,000 watts. Uh, so that would be the equivalent of 110 of very bright, in old-style incandescent light bulbs burning 7 by 24. That's the intensity of the hotter Western uh, cultures. Sub-Saharan Africa, a couple of hundred watts, so two light bulbs. A place like Bangladesh, maybe five light bulbs. A, company like, a country like India, 10 light bulbs, 1,000 watts is about where they're at. Now, uh, you say, well, what do you get for 4,000 watts, which uh, people, experts I've talked to say that by, let's say, 2080 or 2090, our uh, zero-carbon energy sources ought to be able to provide something on the order of 4,000 watts per person across the globe. Well, it turns out, I've picked a couple of countries. Uh, one I like particularly is Portugal. Portugal is just under 4,000 watts. You know, uh, Portugal is a country that's a member of the EU, pretty good quality of life, long life expectancy, damn good food and drink, as a matter of fact. And uh, suppose we had a three-generational commitment that everybody on Earth would be on a trajectory to meet at about the level of uh, material inputs of their society of where Portugal is today. So the all the people in the developing world have 
you know, huge amount of growth. Sub-Saharan Africa could go from a, a couple of hundred watts to 4,000 watts, a 20x increase in their uh, intensity of their civilization. A country like Bangladesh, about 8x. A com- country like India, about 4x. And of course, that will mean that the really rich countries will have to come down. The Europeans by about half, and the uh, Australians and Americans and Canadians by about 3x. And th- this is a personal Jim Rutt vision I call the Great convergence. And, you know, it, it would be a story that would be very sellable to the developing world. And I think is morally correct. Uh, is there any moral reason that Americans should consume, uh, what the hell would be the number, you know, 50 times as much energy and materials per person as a person in sub-Saharan Africa? I can think of no moral reason why that is a correct way for the world to be organized. And if this idea of the great convergence catches on, I think this is a, a way that may well be able to also provide a moral impetus to these changes. Mm, right. Yeah. The consumption rate in the Western world is kind of insane. Uh, but uh, yeah, why do you think the, all of these, uh, or how do you think all of these uh, Game B initiatives, this Game B stuff could fail? Uh, well, there's lots of failure modes, and we have studied them. Uh, one of the ones that has concerned us uh, from the very beginning is collapse into a cult. Yeah, if you look at uh, intentional communities, uh, which are kind of a baby version of our proto-bees, uh, a significant number of them failed when cult leaders took over, uh, you know, started, you know, famously uh, started demanding sex with all the good-looking women and even the not-so-good-looking women. And all the power fell to a single charismatic leader, usually with a few henchmen around them. This is a known failure mode. Uh, of uh, of these kinds of countercultural things. And it's one of the reasons Game B has no official leader, right? There is no pope of Game B, nor will there be. Uh, it's always going to be a, a uh, operation in parallel. And it's one of the reasons why we can start getting to the next level of detail around Game B. We think it's very important that every one of these membranes that we talked about, whether it's a babysitting club or an on-the-ground community or a co-housing project or a Game B enterprise, all have an explicitly written down uh, constitution which provides uh, a form of governance in which everybody has a voice. Doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a representative democracy or a direct democracy. It could be some interesting hybrid like Forrest Landry's uh, small group and ephemeral group practices, or it could be something like sociocracy as an example of things that are not democracy in a formal sense, but w- in which people have both voice and exit. So we think uh, governance and people worshiping their governance and taking their governance modalities uh, seriously is a very solid prophylactic against collapse the cult. Uh, Jamie Wheel has also uh, done some very interesting work on what he calls his uh, ethical cult checklist, which is actually an anti-cult checklist, and we think uh, that's very important. Reach out to Jamie, or I'll, I will, or maybe you can find it on Google. Put that on your uh, episode page, because I think that's a really good thing. Uh, another failure mode is uh, we could be captured. Let's go back and look at the 1960s. There were some social changes happening starting around 1964, accelerating in the late 60s, probably reached their peak around 71 or 72, probably most famously in the uh, student uprisings in Europe in 1968, which included things like the revolution, attempted revolution in uh, Czechoslovakia, which was put down very violently by the, well, not that violently, but, uh, but put down by the Russians. And these changes could have have 
uh, led us to something more like Game B, but they were co-opted. Rock music uh, went from being a grassroots phenomenon and a small business phenomenon uh, to being captured by giant record companies and then huge conglomerates. Uh, you know, record companies were owned by companies like Sony and uh, Coca-Cola owned one at one point. And so the 60s, grassroots, bottom-up social change petered out by the mid-70s and was co-opted and, you know, turned into things like MTV, right, or the, uh, the, the cult of celebrity that we have today. So capture is very important. And again, governance is important here. There's a, uh, some, a, a very interesting idea, which Game B people like, called stewardship ownership, where a controlling golden share of an enterprise is held by a very trustworthy group of people. Let's say it was a board of Game B grandmothers or something, right? People who are very trustworthy. And to do something like sell a Game B company or to uh, sell the property that is the basis for a Game B community would require a uh, consensus by the controllers of the golden share so that uh, merely money could not be used to subvert the mission of game B. And we think building these in is uh, very important to capture. Now, the third failure mode, and this is one that could still happen because it's unproven, which is this core uh, operating uh, doctrine of parasitizing game A by being as good or better at game A than uh, certain game A activities so as to be able to pump resources from game A into game B. And this is going to require discipline. It's also going to require uh, that the people that come into game B are the right kind of people. We don't want people who are looking to escape so they can lay in the hammock, right? And I will say, unfortunately, some of the people attracted to game B are those who are not very ambitious, uh, not interested in building, not interested in doing the best possible work in the world. They're just looking for escape. And that's not who we want in game B, uh, at least not for the first 20 years or so. We're going to absolutely need to have a selective membrane that brings in people who are uh, effective in the world, uh, who are hardworking, have good virtues, good ethics, and can actually outcompete or at least equal uh, game B efficaciousness in the game A world so as to win uh, game A resources to pump back in to build game B. That is a conjecture uh, we think there's some reasons to believe that we can win at that, but it has not been proven. So if it turns out we're wrong, uh, then game B will fail. Uh, and part of the conjecture, I think is very interesting and somewhat subtle, is that, and I would say based on most of the people attracted to game B, as I mentioned, there are some who want to escape from the world and aren't, don't add much value. I would say on average, the people attracted to game B are really solid people who are doing great things and have good values and high work ethic and good virtues and all those sorts of things. So uh, it's our sense, unproven, but it's our conjecture that we will differentially attract the most talented young people in the world into game B. Because uh, once we make clear this incongruence, young people in particular can see the incongruence. Once you're older, it's really hard to see that the dreams you had about what life is really about have disappeared into your boring life in suburbia. But when you're 22, that, congru that incongruence, as you considering taking a job at Goldman Sachs or something, uh, becomes very, very clear. And so we think at that point where people make their life road decision, we will win a disproportionate number of the best 
best young people to bring them into game B. And if that turns out to be true, then I'm my confidence in game B winning uh, goes way up. Not proven yet, but that's uh, one of our core conjectures. That sounds great. And yeah, I love what you touched upon on the on how rock music turned out and like is this exact same thing with the uh, rap and even worse like it turned from like being anti-establishment to like being completely like pro-consumption and pro like uh, <laughs> money in general and the, the same thing that you touched upon on like the attracting people who are like anti-establishment but actually they don't want to work on game beat they just want to talk about this stuff and chill around and we we have had a bunch of these kind of people like come into metagame and then it's like say they want to do things but then they never do anything and uh, I'm not sure what the solution here is I've been thinking about this split of like I was reading this post about uh, how communities have this tension of like between the mission and the village and how there are in every community there are people who are there for the mission and there are people there who are for the village who just want to like hang out and people who want to like actually move things forward I think it's a natural thing, just need to find some kind of a filtering or like a division mechanism that needs to be figured out. Yep. Uh, we think of every entity in Game B as being a membrane. And if we uh, think about the membranes in biology, let's use the cell membrane as a classic one. Uh, a membrane is something that contains a different mix. You know, the chemicals inside a cell are, let's say, a single cell, an amoeba floating around in the water. Uh, the chemistry inside the cell membrane is very different and far more energetic than the chemistry in the uh, water outside of the cell. But the cell is semi-permeable. Things can come in like say for instance uh, oxygen in the case of an amoeba and things can go out the uh, toxins that are created by metabolism and, and any game b entity ought to be thought of as a membrane in which there are gates at the edge for what comes in and one what goes out and one of the things that goes in and goes out are people uh, so there ought to be screening on any game b uh, entity on who becomes a member of the entity, and also, by the way, how to eject people who are not working out, who are not being truly game B. Though I will, I'll also want to make a, a little nuance here. I don't want to make it sound like everybody in a game B community needs to be engaged in game A work. In fact, quite the contrary. Uh, we think that one of the nice things about this vision of how we beat game A over two or three generations, is that we'll be building more and more commons, more and more of our own capacity. So for instance, uh, a proto-B might choose to be significantly self-sufficient in food, in which case there's uh, plenty of jobs for people to raise, process, cook, and serve food to the community. You know, at some point when there's enough Proto-Bs, I can see furniture factories and clothing factories uh, that are game B oriented as opposed to game A oriented and people who want to take a more artisanal way of life rather than having to harshly compete with game A uh, will have ability to operate in the infrastructure of game B itself. Uh, whether it's locally on the ground or whether it's in game B trade, which may have a little bit of a different pace and a little different edge to it. And I think it would be very good uh, for that part of the ecosystem, and it will and it should grow over time. Uh, so there are roles for people who, are, who don't really want to be outwardly facing into game A. Maybe they were traumatized by their dealings with game A at some point.
point and they would much prefer to engage in purely game B activities. Day one, that might be 20% internal, 80% external. Uh, as you imagine the graph growing of all these connected communities and enterprises, it, it may well switch within, say, 30 years to, the, to 2080, where 80% is in the commons inside the game B macro bubble and only 20% is on the outside. We're still going to need computer chips. We're not going to be able to build our own computer chips anytime soon and a few other things. But uh, you know, over the long arc, uh, the amount of uh, external materials that need to come in through the, the macro, the big membrane of game B, ought to go down over time. Right. And like uh, even the people who are not going to be doing much, they like they can still be part of the community. It's just a matter of having these different uh, discovery filtering mechanism like you're gonna have them in the community they can be like artists or like prophets kind of people but you don't want them at a round table of action makers because they're just gonna slow things down and demotivate people yeah you got to get the mix right you know you, you want a shaman probably in a community of 150 you probably want somebody who's the shaman the spiritual guide but you don't want him to be a cult leader god damn it right and there's also room for a musician or two probably right uh, though the musician i would hope would also do some productive work but uh, uh, there's roles, there are many, many roles in a community, and they don't all, ha as I said, they, they uh, don't and should not all be outwardly facing. And it's better over time that more and more of them become in the commons, in the community, as we gradually convert game A materials into game B commons, uh, in which case there'll be more and more niches for these kinds of soft roles within you know, a very alive and very convivial and very satisfying on the ground game B community. And so we covered why game B projects or game B as a whole could fail. But so now the question is, why do you think Game B is inevitable? I don't think it's inevitable, unfortunately. If it was, I'd retire and, you know, I've led a, a wild and interesting life. I'll be 70 years old this year. I could just retire. If I thought it was inevitable, I would. Uh, but it's not inevitable. We are in a battle for what comes next. I wrote an essay called In Search of the Fifth Attractor. It's a little obsolete now, but it might still be worth reading, uh, where I make the claim, and I actually have some complex systems graphics to show it, etc., that game A is moving towards a point of instability. I think it's pretty clear that game A, as it's currently constituted, can't go on. Unfortunately, there are a number of alternative attractor states. If you think of attractor states, uh, think of a society and all of its uh, complex webs. It looks like a salad bowl uh, of all possible ways that this society could operate. And in that salad bowl is a marble, which is the actual current state of the world. Currently, our salad bowl is moving back and forth. and The marble is uh, swatching around. The invention of the internet was a pretty big change in the trajectory of the marble and the salad bowl. And, uh, you know, the financial crisis of 2008 was a big shake of the salad bowl. The Ukraine-Russia war is another big shake of the salad bowl. Should China attack Taiwan even bigger? Should there be a cascade of bank failures at the same time Ukraine and Taiwan wars are happening? The bowl is really shaking and the marble flies out. This is uh, flies out of the basin of attraction, as we'd say in complexity uh, speak. And the question is, where does it land? 
And unfortunately, there are pre-existing bad attractors where the marble could land. Uh, I'll give some examples. Uh, first one would be a neo-dark age, an area where dogmatic religion controls our society. And this has happened before. You know, think of the collapse of the Roman Empire into the Dark Ages and then the long medieval Middle Ages in the West where everything was basically subjugated to the religious doctrines of the Catholic Church. Uh, you can see the same thing happened across the Middle East and North Africa as Islam busted out of Arabia around 700 AD and swept that area. And for a very long time, in fact, still to this day, many countries are under the thumb of theocrats. Think of you know Iran being uh, the most extreme example and Saudi Arabia not far behind it. So a neo-dark age could happen. You know, In the United States, there's a very substantial body of uh, religious fundamentalists that the epoch of liberalism ought to be over and the United States should become a theocracy. And during a, a moment of chaos, that could happen. Uh, another known bad attractor is neo-fascism. And I give as the example there, China. And people say, wait a minute, isn't China communist? Well, yeah, in name, but truthfully, it, it, it has all the attributes of fascism, which is a mixed economy of state and private enterprise with the private enterprise under the thumb of the state, very militaristic, very racist, uh, expansionistic. You know, good old Adolf Hitler would, would be right at home in China, right? And you know, the Chinese model is in some ways more coherent than the current late-stage game A model. And people may say, hey, let's ditch modernism and liberalism and let's just adopt the Chinese model. The Chinese model is actually more complex and more complicated than people think. There is some democracy in China at the very bottom, but it is co-opted by a series of bureaucratic uh, processes as you go up. But it does have some advantages. And so uh, if the marble flies out of game A in the West, it could land in a Chinese-style neo-fascism. Another one, which I think is actually the most likely road right now, is a neo-feudalism, uh, we saw at the very late stage of medieval a Dark Age epoch. Uh, I think of this as the radical libertarians, where money is everything. Uh, and with the growing leverage of money to invest in things like artificial intelligence, uh, computer technologies, etc., we've seen the rich get richer at an unprecedented state. And if you continue that very far without, and especially as artificial general intelligence comes on, we could see a collapse to a small class of nobility, you know, the Bezoses of the world, the Peter Thiels of the world, the, uh, uh, you know, the Elon Musks of the world, establishing themselves as uh, feudal in uh, quasi-independent warlords who have, uh, you know, armies of people under them, first a level of knights, uh, their executive class, etc., and then the peasants, us, underneath them. I think that's actually, uh, that if we don't do something, that's where game A could easily end up in the West, is neo-feudalism. Uh, you see, you know, it's happening at an increasing rate. And then the fourth bad attractor is just chaos itself. You know, if this combination of things leads to, let's say, the destruction of the electrical grid during rioting, or by terrorism, or by bioterrorism, etc., and the, the tall and fragile stack of our technological society collapses rapidly, which could happen, uh, we could end up with just chaos. 
And, uh, you know, the history, that's happened before, right? And then typically that goes through a, a local criminal stage and then a warlord stage and then a monarchy stage on its way back up. And again, a bad attractor. So I think of game B as the fifth attractor. This is the good attractor that it is our job to build. And we need to have it built in time. Uh, and that's why we need to be hustling here a little bit. But it's no guarantee, and there's no reason to complacently sit back and say that, uh, you know, as the Marxists, in theory at least, said, which is history is on our side, you know, the, the Marxist utopia must happen by the inevitable laws of history. Game B does not happen by the inevitable laws of history. Game B is a new attractor so that when the marble flies out of the salad bowl of game A, it lands in a good place instead of a bad place. Makes sense. So I asked uh, why it's inevitable, and I got uh, four more reasons why it might fail. And I, I actually like that, and it kind of puts the fire beneath our feet to like <laughs> get more people active and like get more people to actually do stuff that pushes these ideas forward. So that's great. And then the, the final question is, if you had one advice to give to Metagame, what would it be? Uh, add on the ground. Add face-to-face. And that's actually a great opportunity for me to shield uh, the conference slash festival that we are doing this summer in August. So we are doing uh, a 300-person event in Croatia that's going to be a lot of fun and should be fairly informative as well. So whoever is listening. Ah, I've always wanted to go to Croatia. Uh, Croatia. I've known a number of Croatian people, and they've always been very interesting folks. Right? And I also happen to like that plum brandy that they make in Croatia. Slivovitz, I think it's called, something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Slivovitz. <laughs> it's very similar to our American moonshine, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. And uh, so, yeah, as I said, like I'm, I'm trying to bring in like uh, people from the game B space, uh, from the meta modernism space. So we, it's not a crypto conference, but really trying to make it, like bring like a, a regenerative people and like make it like a melting pot of all of these like niche communities. And it's very important to acknowledge that while game B, we think. Uh, has some interesting things to add. There's lots of other people doing great work uh, in this space. The regenerative ecology people, uh, you know, uh, Daniel Christian Wall, Joe Brewer, plenty of other folks. You mentioned metamodernity, metamodernism. I love the work of Hansi Freinach and uh, and his people, uh, Lena Rachel Anderson, uh, Thomas Bjorkman, Jonathan Rousen. Uh, there's lo- uh, Nora Bateson. There's lots and lots of people uh, in this broader liminal web that are doing great work. And it, we, we should not fall into the trap of being uh, competitors, but rather into the opportunity to be cooperators. Definitely. Definitely want to try to bring all these spaces together. There's so much, uh, so much in common. All right. Yeah, I usually try to keep it under an hour, but uh, this was just too great to, to cut off and try to keep short. So... Yeah, this was a great talk, and uh, thank you very much for coming on. Yeah, you asked great questions. It was, uh, and yes, I will confess to being somewhat long-winded on the topic of game B. So, uh, <laughs> so, but you know, I think I did get a good part of the story across. This is one of the better, I think, uh, explications of game B that I've ever done. So, thanks for the the, the leading questions. All right. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you again, and uh, talk to you soon. <laughs>